This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. Ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who worked and resided here. I'm in the studio with Sky. Hey, Sky. Hello, hello. So excited to be in the studio. Yeah. Yay. Oh, also, I'm Anthony. I don't think I said my name, but uh, yeah. if you're a longtime listener, thank you. <laughs> Everybody else, thank you for listening, tuning in for your first time. We've got some exciting uh, characters yes. to talk about today. Yes, we do. Which, again, we always do. We do, yeah. Because it turns yeah. out people are inherently interesting. Yeah. Weird. Oh, man. I <laughs> I feel like mine today, I couldn't find a lot about his crimes, but he mm. left a mark at the site. So I'm, yeah. I, I'm you excited. Know, I love talking about those. Yes. But I think we start with you today. Yes. All right. So we're also jumping in. How are you? Doing I, good? I'm good. I'm Snowy? just busy as ever. Yeah, of yeah, course you but, are. But, uh, you know, shoveling snow at the old pen, shoveling yeah. snow at home, and... We we both Holidays, on our yeah. on our way in we talked about our mutual love for shoveling snow, yeah. which I feel like is something that only people who live in snowy states, mm-hmm. and even then not everyone likes it. Yeah. So it's kind of funny that you and I share that odd little love. Yeah. Of just getting out when it's cold and snowy and just shoveling it. What, was it know. five years ago? The snowpocalypse. The snowpocalypse. Yeah. I remember I had to chip ice off of our um, like gas meter. Oh my god. So I was out there just like. Clink, like an old like a wow. mine or something just trying to chip ice because it was just covered yeah. in ice oh my gosh and we tried dumping water on it it was just layers and layers and layers yeah. of ice thick i remember that's when i found out about ice dams on the roof because i oh, yeah, yeah i had just moved into my house and i had never cleaned leaves out of yeah. a gutter mm-hmm. and i didn't know that was something you did right and so right. i had a time and a half with the, <laughs> the joys chiseling, of home ownership. <laughs> yeah, chiseling ice out of the gutters, and oh my gosh, I was never so fit in my life <laughs> yeah. as that year shoveling snow. That's so funny <laughs> that we are sitting here talking about this thing that we're like, isn't this so great? And actually, as we're saying it, we're like, actually, it's miserable. It's, it's actually a lot terrible. Of work. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, Christmas is coming. Winter That's is right. here. Well, technically, it's still fall, but it, winter is hit oh, Boise. Jeez, very. Yeah early big time which again i look at all my friends in texas and i'm glad that they enjoy that weather yeah i sure don't i'm sure <laughs> glad it's not 70 degrees right now but yeah. i'm just a little weirdo so <laughs> that's right all right let's anyway, get to your let's get to some maybe weirdos i don't think my my lady's a weirdo she just yeah. had a had a rough life i think so today i'm talking about number 1148 evelyn clark nice. So sources are her inmate file, newspapers.com records, ancestry.com records, 
Morphine Addiction and Abuse on AddictionCenter.com, an article by Eric Tricky from the Smithsonian Magazine in 2018 titled Inside the Story of America's 19th Century Opiate Addiction, Mm -hmm. and then a Wikipedia article on morphine. So I think you can bet, you can guess where we're going. Yeah. So Evelyn Clark was born Evelyn Bibbins on June 19th, 1884, according to her birth record, though she claimed 1882 upon her intake. She was born in Livingston County, Missouri. Her parents were Lafayette and Ella Falk Bibbins. Her father was born in the late 1830s in North Carolina, and her mother was born in 1860 in Missouri. And it's important to note that she is an African-American. So if you know your American history, you know both of those two dates were still when slavery existed in the United States. So as both of her parents were born in slave states, it seems that both of her parents were likely born as slaves. Mm -hmm. Her father actually served in the 62nd Regiment of the U.S. Colored Infantry during the Civil War. So that's very cool. In total, Evelyn's mother had five children, but Evelyn is the only child to have survived, which is very sad but very common, unfortunately, um, back then. So we don't know very much about Evelyn's early life. In fact, there are actually more documents about Evelyn's parents on Ancestry and newspapers than Mm -hmm. actually about Evelyn herself. So any information we have about her early life comes from her intake form. So she had eight years of common school education. She was raised in the Methodist church and she attended Sunday school. When Evelyn was either six or eight years old, again, depending on what year she was actually born, in 1890, according to the Chillicothe Morning Constitution newspaper, the Bibbins household in Utica, Missouri, burned down. Quote, the fire originated from a spark in the chimney. Nearly all the furniture was saved. There was no insurance, end quote. So that's the most information we have on that incident, but it is just a little piece of her life. And I, and I know people whose houses have burned down and the trauma that that inflicts, yeah. um, which is, I think, something that we just kind of don't think about very often because it doesn't happen a lot. Mm-hmm. But when it does, it is just horrifying and traumatic. So definitely sad for the whole family and, and scary for a six or eight year old. Her father, Lafayette, died in June 1900, when Evelyn was about 16 or 18 years old. A few years later, Evelyn left Missouri and she moved west. And the intake form says she left her parents' house at her home at age 20. I think at some point she got married because from this point forward, she's only known as Evelyn Clark. Mm. But I couldn't find any records as to who she got married, when she got married, who gave her the last name Clark. It could also perhaps be that she just came up with that name herself yeah. to kind of, you know, revamp, you know, a new life yeah. uh, out west. So as an African American woman in the early 20th century, her prospects for jobs were incredibly limited, and according to the next mentions of her in the newspaper, she found work in the world's oldest profession or sex work. So she was arrested in Montana for robbing a man, and there are actually three different newspaper articles about this event. The Butte Daily Post on February 8th, 1904, stated she had been arrested, quote, for the third time within the past few weeks on a charge of touching a visitor at her crib to the amount of $80, end quote. Uh, So touching here obviously is not referring to physical touching, which I'm sure she did, but it is referring to stealing from him. A man named William McBride entered what the Anaconda Standard called Pleasant Alley, 
um, which I'm assuming is named that because of uh, it was essentially a place that you could pick up sex workers. Um, and this was, again, in Butte, Montana. And so this man, William McBride, he had $80 in folded up bills in the fob pocket of his trousers, which is that little pocket that's like on top of the big one in most pants. That's, that's what I put my chapstick. Yeah. Manly man right see, here. See, I just actually, <laughs> I, I don't, I never used it because I'm always like, what is this for? Yeah. But, you know, you could put $80 in folded up bills in there, apparently. Yeah. So then this is a quote from the newspaper, quote, then he kept his hand against the pocket or one finger inserted it so that it would always touch the money, end quote. Then, according to the Anaconda Standard, quote, among the persons who McBride encountered was Evelyn Clark, whose complexion is absolutely black. The woman, according to McBride, wanted to toy with his pockets. He thought he was wise and he made no serious objection. Every now and then he felt to see if his money was safe and there in the fob pocket was a roll. When McBride left the house of the Clark woman, his index finger was inserted in his fob pocket and was pressing against a roll, end quote. And so he, like, kind of chuckling to himself, he pulls out this roll, thinking he got one over, and he found that it was a roll of cigarette papers wow. instead, which is, like, amazing God. sleight of hand of awesome. her. So he immediately alerted the police, who found, quote, the Clark woman enjoying frequent drafts from a bottle of whiskey and chasers from a bucket of beer, end quote, and arrested her. So she wasted no time probably assuming that she was going to be picked up for it. So she was like, I'm going to go spend this money Mm -hmm. while I can. And $80? (laughs) Yeah. That's... What, Which, how many hundreds of dollars? I know. At this I, time? Sh- I don't know why I didn't look that up. That's usually oh, our favorite man. game. Regardless, it's yeah, a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot oh of money. Gosh. So they arrested her. The Butte Daily Post said that Evelyn, quote, even denied having entertained the men at her place, oh. end quote. According to another newspaper, the Butte Miner, she was sent to the county jail to wait for further prosecution by the county attorney. And this was actually not the first time she had been accused and arrested on similar charges. Mm. From the Great False Tribune newspaper, quote, both times before, the amount she was said to have taken were small and she made good explanations to Judge Boyle, which affected her release, end quote. So she talks really well. She gets herself out of these sticky situations. <laughs> I couldn't actually find any articles with resolution as to how her stealing the $80 ended. But I would guess after her third release, she did spend some time either in jail or in prison. But again, nothing to confirm that. So understandably, just given the story that we've heard now, it seems that she lived kind of a bit of a rough and tumble life after she left her parents' home. But it's really difficult to trace and figure out. Mm -hmm. And at some point, we don't know when, she was introduced to morphine, which I think she became addicted to. So as many of us know, morphine is a derivative of opium plants used as a painkiller. People get addicted because a person's tolerance develops really rapidly. Morphine can produce a dreamlike state in the user, and it is extracted from the same plant as heroin. So addiction and overuse of morphine can be really, really dangerous. And I'm sure uh, you would be hard-pressed to find someone who hasn't, you know, in some way, whether it's themselves or friends or family members have been affected by the likes of opioids. But Evelyn's addiction to morphine may not have been her fault, as morphine as a medication was grossly overused in the 19th and early 20th century. So here's another rabbit hole. We all know I love these. Bear with me here. So this is kind of the history of morphine addiction, Um, because I feel like Again, just being the nerd that I am, watching a lot of old movies, there is a lot of insinuations that characters are addicted to morphine, but you never get the sense of, like, why is that? Yeah. Is it similar to, you know, the way we see drugs passed out today? Mm-hmm. You know, what what's the deal here? So an opium-based elixir has been available as early as the Byzantine times, but morphine was, quote-unquote, discovered by a German pharmacist in 1804. 
he extracted an active alkaloid from the opium poppy plant and experimented with himself, three young boys, three dogs, and a mouse. All four That's people. A very strange. Yeah, I know. Collection well, of and it's subjects. Like, why three boys? Like, why are we not using adults in this situation? Mm-hmm. Like, children seems bad. And in fact, all four humans almost died. And this is because wow. his solution was six times stronger than opium on its own. Wow. Yeah. So he literally almost killed everyone that he tried Jeez. this on. And it, it doesn't mention what happened to the animals, but I would imagine if it almost killed the people, it probably killed the animals. Yeah. So oh. this German physicist, whose name apparently I did not write down, he became addicted to morphine himself, quite understandably, but he did try to devote his life to helping people avoid the negative effects of the drug. Mm-hmm. I think from the beginning, we recognize that like the pain-killing properties of it are very important, but obviously understanding becoming addicted almost killing himself and three young boys you know very much knew the dangers of it but nevertheless morphine was marketed as pain medication in 1817 it was also considered a treatment for ironically opium and alcohol addiction so let's fix your addiction by getting you addicted to something else right i guess is you know the thinking there. So commercial sales began in 1827 by the pharmacy that eventually became the pharmaceutical company Merck. The Civil War proved a boon for morphine sales, but unfortunately and understandably also for morphine addiction. According to Eric Tricky's article from the Smithsonian Magazine, quote, the Union Army issued nearly 10 million opium pills to its soldiers, plus 2.8 million ounces of opium powders and tinctures, end quote. Wow. An unknown number, though it is estimated as much as 400,000 soldiers came home addicted to morphine. Wow. Jeez. Starting in around the 1870s, Chinese immigrants became major sources of opium smoking throughout the United States, and soon opium became heavily associated with Chinese immigrants. Some immigrants began operating opium dens in major cities and in western towns. These dens then began attracting other immigrants as well as working-class urban men. But it's important to note, it was not always considered a drug solely of immigrants, and especially immigrants that were different than the average white American. An opioid addiction epidemic affected one in 200 Americans by 1895, as doctors prescribed morphine for problems as diverse as asthma, headaches, alcohol and drug withdrawal, and gastrointestinal diseases. And it was also sold as an over-the-counter medicine, meaning anybody who wanted it could get it. According to Tricky, because doctors used morphine for many women's menstrual cramps, morning sickness, and a smattering uh, of vague nervous diseases, that, quote, by the late 1800s, women made up more than 60% of opium addicts, end quote. And it's so easily accessible, Mm -hmm. readily available. And, you know, if your doctor says, oh, you're having menstrual cramps, well, it's a pain reliever. So, you know, just take it whenever you aren't feeling well. You know, these women are taking it. Four days, mm-hmm. you know, four days, at least one week. But I would imagine that you feel so good on it that yeah. you're starting to take it more and more, even when you're not suffering from those. Um, and it's just a downward spiral. Yeah. Oh, so scary. As early as the 1870s and 1880s, medical journals were full of warnings against morphine addiction, but doctors had very few alternatives. Mm-hmm. Through 1895, the typical morphine addict was an upper or middle class white woman because of their access to doctors and access to the drug, which upper and middle class white women in the 1890s is like a whole fascinating like there's all sorts of things Uh that go on and 
I won't get into it now, but I wish I could. Like, there's just some <laughs> some really interesting stuff simply because they were women who had money. They were women who didn't have a lot to do during the day because all of their like housework was done by other people. It's just it's so interesting. So lawmakers began to be concerned with this demographic's addiction. So state laws between 1895 and 1905 helped restrict the sale of morphine to patients with a valid prescription, quote, ending their availability as over-the-counter drugs, end quote. And then as it was outlawed and because of its other associations with Chinese immigrants and the working class, it became more and more associated with what others would consider, quote, unquote, lower-class citizens, um, including gamblers and sex workers. So it is quite possible that it had been prescribed to Evelyn for a legitimate reason, and it just got out of hand. Of course, we don't really know. And then going back to Evelyn, we just don't really have much of anything by way of how Evelyn ended up in Idaho. Montana, of course, is right next door. So quite possible she just got tired of Montana, especially having been arrested, uh, and she ended up here. And so she lived in Pocatello, which, as I've mentioned several times before on the podcast, had the largest African-American population in the state. Her intake form says she works as a servant girl or as a domestic worker. And uh, while she was in Pocatello, I think she met an African-American man named Robert Johnson, who was born in Galveston, Texas. He worked as a boot black and assistant cook, presumably also in Pocatello. I have no definitive details about how they met or what their relationship was. I think it was at the very least romantic, and I'll get into why I think that is in just a little while. Did you say a boot black? Yeah, so they're like um, kind of like shoe shine boys. Oh, okay. They're the people who, if you want to get your shoe shines, or yeah. you, so you put the polish on your black boots and mm-hmm. they uh, fix that up. So um, unfortunately, I have absolutely no details whatsoever about her crime other than it was for first degree burglary. And I've scoured every possible newspaper published in 1905 available on newspapers.com, and there's just nothing about it anywhere. So the statesman did report on September 15th, 1905, that Evelyn and Robert Johnson had both been found guilty of burglary in the first degree by a Pocatello jury. This doesn't specify that Evelyn and Robert committed the crime together, but I have a feeling that they probably did. The other thing to note about this is that Evelyn was actually convicted of burglary in the second degree rather than burglary in the first degree, which may intimate that they did it together and that they considered Robert the, like, mastermind of it. So, again, we just don't have more information, so we can't be certain about it. So, with zero details of the crime, which also, though, we can probably assume it's kind of... We've seen her stealing before, Mm -hmm. so she has done it in the past kind of maybe maybe gotten away with it in the past yeah. who knows so it's it's not like it's something completely out of the blue so she entered the idaho state penitentiary on september 21st 1905 for a four-year sentence so her intake form when she received she was 23 years old born in missouri legitimate occupation servant girl height five feet seven and a half inches complexion black weight 145 color of hair black color of eyes black her conjugal relations were listed as separated. Mm. Um, so again, that that seems to indicate she was married, just don't know to whom. She has no children. Father living, no. Died when prisoner was 19 years old, which I think was, I found the date. She would have been 16 or 18. Oh. Um, mother living, yes. Left parents home when she was 20 years old. Has had religious instruction in the Methodist church. She did not consider herself a member of any church by the time she came in. Had a common school education for eight years, habits of life, moderate drinker, and then on her uh, intake form, it is listed, is addicted to the use of cigarettes and morphine. Oh, jeez. 
It does say that her former imprisonment was none, so she may not have actually been spent time, at least in prison, mm-hmm. for the time that she stole $80 from that guy. Um, name and address of nearest relative is Mrs. Ella Bibbins, who is her mother, it was listed general delivery in Ogden, Utah. So mm. her family, it seems at some point moved west, uh, her mother at least moved with her. Peculiarity in build and feature is listed as quite large, prominent jaw, has large burn scar on the back of her left hand, Ooh. and she had large rings, so big hoop earrings. Huh. You can see that in her mugshot yeah. that she has, which is interesting because you weren't often allowed to keep anything that you came in with so i don't know why they let her keep those but they did condition of teeth good which is very rare beard received of course none boot seven and a half size no property found on the convict again she came in pretty early and so she served with some of our more notorious inmates including josie kensler who we covered in episode two and jenny daly who we covered in episode seven and actually, the only other inmate that she was in with besides Josie and Jenny was Caddy Shoop, who was in for voluntary manslaughter, who we've not covered yet. Mm-hmm. A few months after she arrived, she was joined by Mary Allen, who we covered in episode 29. And just before she left, she was also joined by Alta McGee, who we've covered in episode 9. So she was in with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people yeah. that we've already talked about and know a little bit about. All fascinating stories uh-huh. there, yeah. And of course, she was the only African-American in there. Yeah. And so I, I wonder how that went, given how early it is given that it's Idaho which has a very small African-American population at the time Um, so that to be a fly on the wall in the women's ward at that time would have been so they would have been outside the walls by this point but they would not have been in the big women's ward that you Mm -hmm. can visit when you visit the site it would have been uh, essentially just an old house yeah uh, where the warden used to live yeah So we don't have any records of her in prison except for one letter. And this is the reason that I think Evelyn and Robert might have been on fairly intimate terms. This letter was written to someone named Charlie Sell, who was a Bannock County deputy when Evelyn got into trouble. And it seems like they may have known each other well as friends, or perhaps Evelyn felt that Charlie was someone she could trust. I'm not Mm -hmm. totally sure. It's actually very rare that we see a convicted criminal being friends with and sort of talking really openly with uh, an authority figure. So Mm -hmm. this letter reads, quote, Dear Sir, I promise not to write, but I am compelled to. Charlie, I am as sick as I can be. I have not come well since the 23rd of August. I am in family way as sure as you are born. I must get out of here if possible, for I can't do nothing here. The matron watches me so, and I have nothing to work with. If I can only get on the outside, I can get straight again, and no one will be the wiser. But if I have to stay in here and go through it, you know what it will mean for you. And I would do anything to shield you that is my power, but I am pregnant and sick as H-L at my stomach. And if we are going to do anything, we can't wait too long. You see, it was time for me to be sick when I stayed with you, and that stopped everything. But you need not worry about it being known out in time to do anything for myself. What have you done with Johnson's letters? Have you heard anything? So, basically what she's saying here is, I'm pregnant, and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I need your help. And she says, uh, she says something like, I was basically, I was already pregnant when I came to stay with you. So I don't know if maybe she and, and Johnson and Robert Johnson got in some sort of fight and she went to stay with him. I'm not really sure. And of course, Johnson could refer to like literally anyone with the last name. But given the fact that that's also Robert's last name, Mm -hmm. that seems to indicate that that's who that is. So 
As far as I can tell, Evelyn did not give birth in prison, and we don't have any medical records that she lost the pregnancy, so I'm not exactly sure what happened. And and in fact, you and I you know, know this, this letter was in someone else's file, another mm-hmm. inmate's file. Yeah. And we've, we saw it, I can't even remember whose file it was in, but it was signed Evelyn, and we were like, who is oh. Evelyn? Yeah. Like, yeah. who is this? And for whatever reason, when I was going through, I had just barely looked at that file that had that in there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there is literally nothing on this girl. Like, what is going on? And somehow I put those two together and I was like, this is hers. This yeah. is Evelyn's. Evelyn That's... was pregnant when she came uh. into the prison. <sighs> but again, like, what happened after that, we we just don't know. Yeah. So yeah, I'm really interested in that relationship between Charlie and and Evelyn. It mm. seems that they were good friends or in some way Charlie's cell felt like he had to protect her or something. I just find that so interesting. Yeah. That letter is fascinating. And I just wish we knew more about it. Kind of one of those things that's just like, oh, what happened here? Yeah. Again, to be a fly on the wall and be like, who is this Charlie cell? Um, yeah. Was yeah? Was this letter intentionally, mm-hmm. you know, did we uncover something that right, was right. supposed to be hidden? Or? I know. <laughs> well, and before she says anything about what have you done with Johnson's letters, it's almost the implication is that it's Charlie's. Yeah. But I, I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. I think... I think the fact that she's she's starting to get really anxious about the fact that she hasn't heard anything from anyone. She's in this this state and she feels truly alone. And so yeah. I think she's trying to get in touch with him because he knows how to get in touch with Robert. But yeah, it's it, so it interesting. Kind of almost feels blackmaily too mm. that like if you don't help me, like yeah. I'll reveal something. Yeah, like she says, um, yeah, if if I have to stay in here and go through it with it, I'm sure it's probably what I was supposed to say, you know what it will mean for you. Yeah. And I would do anything to shield you that is my power. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm pregnant and sick as hell at my stomach. And if we're going to do anything, we can't wait too long. So there is kind of that implication that it like that makes it sound like it's his. Yeah. Which I don't know weird. if Charlie Sell is also African American, if he's white. Um, if he's white, that of course is something completely, you know, means right. something completely different for yeah. the, both of them. <sighs> so yeah, it's such a curious letter. And just think, like, if we had never found this. Oh, my god! You know, like, we would know nothing about it. That was the thing. Yeah. Is we were researching her for, I think, a project. And we were just like, there's nothing on her. Like, uh-huh. we don't, we, there's nothing. Yeah. So to find that was exciting. But it, if anything, it just makes it more confusing. Because, like, what does any of this mean? <laughs> the joys of being a historian. That's right. All right. So the next document we have about her is her parole, which was granted on October 17th, 1908. Uh, The main condition of her parole was that she had to remain in Ada County until the parole board granted her permission to go elsewhere. She also had to write to the warden on the first day of each month stating where she was working, how much she earned, and an itemized account of her expenditures. Wow. Which is really far more, like detail-oriented than yeah. any other parole. A lot more uh, intrusive than Yeah, I totally. Thinking, but, I mean, if you're addicted to morphine, mm-hmm. like, then, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. where's your money going? Exactly, and, yeah. Oh, no, it's gosh. a very good point. Uh, if she was fired, she had to immediately write the warden stating the cause of the dismissal. Wow. She had to abstain from consuming alcohol, narcotics, tobacco, and gambling. And she also had to avoid loitering in places where alcohol was consumed, gambling took place, or reportedly housed people of quote-unquote ill repute. Wow, okay. So yeah, so they are keeping almost you know every track of her that they can, which I would I would hope... I think she was in for about four years, three or four years, Mm -hmm. that by that time she would have at least gone through withdrawals and been off morphine. But 
we all know how easy it is to get back into that habit. Mm. And then the other condition was that she could not carry firearms. So she served three years, 26 days of a four-year sentence, which is actually one of the longest in terms of like actually women actually serving out their sentence. It wasn't the longest that anyone was here, but the fact that she did almost serve four four years is very, very, yeah, very rare for, for the women in here. While Evelyn was serving in prison, about seven months before her release, her mother, Ella Bibbins, who was living in Ogden, Utah, was deemed insane, quote, from religion, end quote, and was sent to the state mental hospital in Provo. The Wasatch Wave from Heber City reported quite insensitively, quote, the Negress is laboring under the hallucination so popular among members of her race that she is endowed with the power to throw a spell or hoodoo over those who incur her displeasure, end quote. Wow. So basically this was just that she practiced a different religion than, than Mormonism, to be, you know, quite frank. And and that's all the more we know about it. But if all she thought was that she had these sort of extra powers, I don't think that's insanity. Right. But back then, anything was insanity. Wow. So right. sadly, just a month and a half before Evelyn was released, her mother died in the hospital. So it is possible that she was suffering from some sort of delusion. But mm-hmm. once she got permission, Evelyn moved down to Ogden, Utah herself. The 1910 census lists Evelyn as a rooming housekeeper with one rumor named Lee Johnson. Oh, couldn't find any records about who this Lee Johnson was. It is a big coincidence, but I, again, I don't think this is the Johnson that Evelyn mentioned in her letter, but if it was, that's a whole different story too. Oh my gosh. And this is really all I can find about Evelyn. I can't even find, definitively find any record about her death. There is one record of an Evelyn McConnell, a black woman born in Missouri about 1883, who died in Ogden on September 16th, 1911, following complications from surgery for uterine fibroids. Mm. Again, we can't say this is for sure that this is her, but there are a lot of things that match what we know about her. Or within, I mean, 1883 is a year between 84 and 82, which are the two dates we have for her. She's living in Ogden. She is African-American. If this is her, she married a man named William D. McConnell at some point between early 1910 and September 1911, but I couldn't find any record of their marriage. And also, if this is her, she died at the age of 28. Wow. Um, but I cannot say for certainty that this is our Evelyn, but that is that is all I have for her. Wow. So Jeez. kind of a, a life of, of mystery in terms yeah. of from our perspective. So kind of an interesting little again nothing about her crime which i think actually is a similar problem that you'll have yeah uh, you mentioned earlier but still such such interesting things going on in her life yeah absolutely i think ours are kind of similar in Mm -hmm. that way that mostly it's the things surrounding Mm -hmm. my subject that are like what yeah yeah whoa yeah which again i think circles back to this whole point of the podcast is to show that sometimes it isn't even about their crime it's Mm -hmm. about understanding them as humans and and the things that made them who they were Mm -hmm. uh whether they got involved you know in terms of if that led them to getting involved in crime or if they accidentally did that's one of the things i love is that we get to look at this letter and be like what is this letter about she was pregnant what happened to her and i just think that's so interesting among the prison population they could find people who cement work or carpenters was it a problem having a construction site right in the yard for security reasons? Nothing ever came out of it, no. But uh, it seemed possible. Were those buildings fenced off while they were being built? Uh, no. No, the tools. Uh, I don't remember uh, any occasion where uh, a tool like a chisel or something would be removed from the site, but it, 
that's not to say it didn't happen. Yeah. Being on the wall and just in the yard for a short time on the two days, didn't know all that was going on in the yard. Of course, you didn't. You wouldn't know that if you was in the yard. <laughs> Where did they keep the maximum security prisoners before Five House was built? Which building were they in when you started? I'd say one house, the new cell house, as they called it, because right. originally the uh, what was the chapel when I worked here was the original uh, cell house, as I understand, with the wooden fence around it, ball, ball and chain technique. I can't wait to hear about yours since again we accidentally matched up so who have you got for us? I have John Lewis Raff number 5514 and number 6137. Okay. My sources today are the digitized Idaho Daily Statesman from NewsBank, Library of Congress Chronicling America, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, the history of Northwest Nazarene University from hey, their website. Nice. Yeah, they were my rivals at the College of Oh, Idaho, yes, yes. My dad actually just announced the big basketball game hey, between those two teams. Nice. So I think he said College of Idaho won, so go Yotes. Woo! <laughs> nice. I uh, did not watch, but congrats, <laughs> That's what I mean, That's I think awesome. he said it's the longest-running rivalry in the state. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Our fountain. We have a fountain on campus. Mm-hmm. It would be changed to different colors all the time really okay yeah, it'd be full of like soap so bubbles right. everywhere right. and then it would be like i think red or blue oh so they so they would, they would dye come and dye it yeah. oh interesting yeah, so a lot okay. of rivalry there okay anyway uh, my last source was a nampa parks and rec write up on lakeview park sweet yeah so uh it's been a while actually since i've covered someone who left a physical mark on the site but Today, when you visit, if you are in the prison Rose Garden and look at the 1890 cell house from Mm -hmm. the prison Rose Garden, Mm -hmm. you can see just above the middle window there, Mm -hmm. about 15 feet up, on the cement, it says John Raff, 5514-6137. It's pretty small, but it seemed right above the window. Okay. And I was intrigued when I first Mm -hmm. saw this, of course, and basically just found this super tragic story about this man's life, Mm. you know? It wasn't like Charles Sandusky in front of the territorial prison, right? Which was like a fascinating, wild crime. Uh-huh. It was this one is mostly like, man, can anything worse happen? Ugh. It just yeah. anyway. Okay. John Lewis Raff was born in Nampa, Idaho, on March eighth, nineteen nineteen, to Fred Raff and Kathleen Lee Wilhelm Raff. On his birth certificate, his father's occupation was listed as rancher, and his mother listed hers as housewife, and John had six older siblings, including older brothers Percy, Gilbert, Glenn, Dayton, and older sisters Philia and Ethel. And he did have an infant brother who uh, named Datus, or Datus, who died just a year before John was, mm-hmm. was born, and he died of pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's the youngest. He's the youngest. Okay. So he's the baby in the family. So his father, Fred, was born in Iowa in 1874, and Fred was a member of the Church of the Nazarene. And he and Catherine picked up and moved west to Idaho around 1918, uh, about a year before having John. Okay. So the whole family, all these kids, they all head west and end up in Nampa, Idaho. And some of you, you know, as we just mentioned, may know the connection between <laughs> Nampa and the Nazarene denomination. Northwest Nazarene College was actually established in Nampa, Idaho, by Eugene Emerson in 1913, 
with the desire for him to educate his own children in what is now a, quote, fully accredited co-educational Christian comprehensive university of the arts, humanities, sciences, and professions, end quote. That's from their website. But Eugene was elected mayor of Nampa a decade after starting this school. And it started actually just as an elementary school. And it was held in the Mennonite Church on the corner of 13th Avenue and 8th Street in Nampa. And this was called the Idaho Holiness School at the very beginning. And then two years later, in 1915, ground was broken for the first building that would become the NNU campus. And the first students graduated from the newly developed high school program that year. And then two years later, in 1917, the first four students graduated with college degrees. Mm. So it happened pretty quickly, and it's all happening. And did you say it was two years later? Yeah, So was it their associates, yeah. or was it that time you could get your bachelor's after two? I think it was their – It was ju- they just offered two-year degrees. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, for like the first, I think, 15 years. Okay. And then in the 30s, they started okay. the four-year programs. Gotcha. In the 30s, college became accredited as a junior college, and in the mid-60s, master's programs were actually offered mm. at the school. And then in 1999, the name changed to what it is today, Northwest Nazarene University, or NNU. The development of this school, paired with the abundance of land in Nampa around this time, may have been what motivated the Raff family to leave Iowa for Idaho. Our often, you know, mistaken <laughs> names right there. <laughs> I didn't find any evidence that any of the the Raft children actually went to the school, though, but they may have gone to the, the church. So John, as the youngest, had several older siblings to look up to and to learn from, as I was also the baby of my family, <laughs> and I've had a very similar uh, similar experiences with my siblings. So you're the favorite, is what you're saying. Well, yeah. yeah. I, but I, you know, I've chosen a different path <laughs> from some of my elder okay. brothers. Okay. In 1930, John's brother, Gilbert, who was seven years his senior, spent nine days in jail in Caldwell and paid a $25 fine after he was caught, quote, shooting ducks after sundown, end quote. (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh. That sounds just, my brother literally has done that. It honestly (laughs) sounds like a teenage, you know, to early, like young adult male. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. And the next year, his older brother, Gilbert, was sentenced to the Idaho State Penitentiary as number 4637 for forgery and sentenced to 1 to 14 years. Mm. Upon his release in July 1933, he took off and went to Klamath Falls, Oregon. A month later, on August 5th, a day short from a month of his release from the Idaho State Pen, Gilbert and a partner held up and robbed a convenience store on South 6th Street Ah! early in the morning. (laughs) After waving the revolver around and demanding money, the two actually hopped into a vehicle they had stolen earlier that day, and they took off. The car was reported stolen, of course, and the police were on the lookout, and Gilbert Raff said that he dumped the revolver, he was just driving around, Mm. tossed it out the window somewhere, Mm. he didn't know where, and then his partner split. He dropped his partner off, and Mm. he left. So later that evening, when police spotted the stolen vehicle... Gilbert was still in it, and he was arrested and busted and sentenced to five years in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Yeah, so, I mean, he was armed in this robbery, so it was a serious, serious conviction. On the other hand, John Raff had other brothers who were a little bit better role models. Okay. So in the fall of 1934, 15-year-old John Lewis Raff was making his way at Nampa High School, and his older brother Glenn was a star football player playing right halfback. 
and he had some really great write-ups in the newspaper. So on November 12th, Boise High played Nampa High. This is the title of this article. Bulldogs rip Braves apart. Invaders massacre Boise High School 11 in annual grid classic. I was like, that is the most brutal high school football thing. Seriously. Quote, swept by the power, the cunning, and the savagery of the fierce, unrelenting wave of blue and red, the football hopes of the Boise High School lay shattered on the ruffled turf of public school field Monday night, struck down by a crushing 46 to six defeat (laughs) worst in the history of the ancient traditional grid rivalry between nampa and boise end quote interesting that it was such a rivalry back then because i don't i don't even think they're the same division so they don't even play each other anymore yeah who is it now who's boise's biggest rival timberline or well i think it depends on the sport because in in soccer when i played boise was like one of our huge rivals but i was at Uh mountain view and so it's like not that old of a rivalry so again it depends on the sport but i don't know who for my dad would know to be honest but um yeah i'm not really sure yeah but that's well and that's so interesting too because it's it's boise and nampa basically two cities that are are you know vying and for population right. and for for prestige in the in the yeah. state so that's really interesting yeah so during the game glenn actually caught a 45 yard pass so he was riding on this high mm-hmm. and a week after this november 17th 1934 a week after this historic victory that was written up about Glenn was riding in the car with Nampa Senior High School football star end Clarence Nelson and substitute fullback Conrad Schaefer. So these three boys are actually on their way from Nampa to Caldwell to watch a College of Idaho football Mm. game. It was a dark and stormy night, and the roads were slick. Four miles outside of Nampa on the highway between the two cities, a car driven by Mr. and Mrs. John Holtz was heading in the opposite direction, and it was slowing down. Quote, it skidded on the wet pavement and turned to the left side of the highway, directly in the path of the light car in which the three youths were going to Caldwell. The crash followed. (laughs) Clarence suffered a fractured skull and was unconscious. Glenn Raff and Conrad Schaefer were both cut and bruised about the head and shoulders. They survived this, but Clarence, the star football player, actually died oh. from his injuries. Despite the death of this Nampa Bulldog star end, the game scheduled for the following Friday continued. Oh. Glenn Raff and Conrad Schaefer were actually able to leave the hospital a mm-hmm. few days after the wreck, but they didn't play that week. Mm. How did the other drivers fare, do you know? They they were fine. They okay. they were bruised, mm-hmm. but they had a lot heavier vehicle that they were driving. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is a reminder like, as we oh head into gosh. the winter season, please, please, please drive so carefully. Oh, seriously. Like one time I remember a couple of years ago, I was driving just with my friend and we just thankfully we hit a patch of black ice and there was no one around but when i tell you it was genuinely one of the scariest moments of my whole life like i i can't even imagine like having that happen and knowing that there is a car that you are going to hit it's so scary please be careful in this winter weather yes oh and if you're in texas and there is no winter weather then congratulations (laughs) but still drive safely because i've driven in texas and they're crazy too Those giant trucks. (laughs) They just have their trucks. They think there are no rules. They just drive however they want. I'm very passionate about this. Oh, man. I was so sad reading this. I'm just like, man, a week after this amazing write-up, this this, Uh, uh, Clarence was beloved. And for that to happen mm -hmm. is just, oh. 
At home, John's mother was a member of the Syringa Club, another good source, mm-hmm. a good mentorship for mm-hmm. him. The Rafts regularly hosted the women and held club election at their home in December of 35, so not long after this. Uh, the Syringa Club was an Idaho-based club for women that started as a study club and reading circle, and it evolved into more community improvement focused on programs and events and charitable giving and they continued to actually unite in several communities around mm. the state and still host like spaghetti dinners and mm. things like that it's kind of cool yeah. it's it was fun going down that hundred plus year old yeah club well history. and this is quite the family like they're kind of all over the place with yeah. they've got these high you know their mom is a part of a civic club right. and and doing lots of good stuff and then his brothers are kind of in and out of jail and prison so it's it's uh it's very interesting yeah so he's got a lot of things mm-hmm. that he could be doing mm-hmm. with his life mm-hmm. maybe just help his dad i saw his dad he's very successful at raising hogs okay. and you know he he had all kinds of opportunity but on april 22nd 1936 so just later that spring after they just hosted this like election for the swinger club in the house and this boy glenn just watched one of his teammates die mm-hmm. in a car crash and mm-hmm. nearly died himself on April 22nd, 1936, the Raft mother, Catherine, dies at oh, the age of 55. Sad. So this would have been, obviously, a major blow to the family and to the community as she was a big active member of these, of these organizations. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, John took more after his brother Gilbert than Glenn. Mm. is documented in his intake form that he served time in the St. Anthony Industrial School mm. on the eastern border of Idaho. And... As we've mentioned this on previous episodes, St. Anthony was a school for troubled children, but I couldn't find any information to verify like when or why he was sent there. There were no mm. dates involved in that. Okay. But John's brother Gilbert was released from the Oregon State Penitentiary in spring 1937. Mm-hmm. He returned to Idaho on parole, and it wasn't long until he went back to his old ways. This time, he invited his little brother John in on this Uh-oh. heist. Okay. John and Gilbert went to one of Nampa's, quote, oldest and perhaps most scenic parks, end quote, Lakeview Park near Garrity Boulevard and 11th Avenue North, and they broke into the shanty soft drink stand and took off with an undisclosed amount of mm. money. That was basically the only details I could find. Okay. They were busted soon after, and the trial for the two young raft boys was set for June 8th, 1937. Their bonds were set at $1,500 each, which they couldn't afford, so they sat in the city jail. They pled guilty and were both sentenced to the Idaho State Penitentiary. Gilbert, with his lengthy record, was given from 18 months to five years in the penitentiary, so a year and a half to five years, while John, being his first time, was given one to five years in the penitentiary. Is Lakeside Park the one that has the airplanes and yeah. stuff? Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. I know which one you're talking yeah. about. I, I, I used to live out there. I remember, plus, it's like as a little kid, you're like, oh, there's just a plane in well, this park. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so sorry. cool. Uh, John Lewis Raff, number 5514, crime burglary, age 18, height mm. 5 feet 11 and 3 quarters inches tall. So he's, he's a tall kid. Yeah, yeah. Weight 175 pounds, build regular, hair light brown, eyes blue, complexion medium. Mustache, no. Born in Nampa, Idaho, March 8th, 1919. Occupation, farmer. Arrested June 3rd, 1937 and received at the prison June 10th, 1937. Sentence 1 to 5. His Bertillon showed that he had scars above his right eye and below his right nostril. And it noted that he was blind in his right eye. 
Oh. And uh, you can kind of see he kind of has cross eyes. Uh, oh, they okay. mentioned that later. He also had a scar on his inner left thigh and left knee. The form from the prosecuting attorney, Donald Anderson, noted that he felt that John was a habitual criminal and, quote, he doesn't seem to have the desire to be law-abiding, mm. end quote. So not a good way to start. Right. Yeah. The prison population of the time that John first arrived in 37 hovered around 300, and Warden P.C. Meredith wrote in the 1937-1938 biennial report that the prison obtained water rights covering the penitentiary in Eagle Island, saved money by using ditch water instead of city water for irrigation, quote, completion of eight guards' houses by adding back porches, installing bathtubs and toilets, building cupboards, and digging basements, end quote, which were most likely the, the houses that were bu- built on Goodman Street, just, mm. just down from us. Uh, Warden Meredith also noted that all the improvements to the farm and orchards occurred around that time period, and there was also the development of a slaughterhouse mm. for the prisoners to butcher their own animals. Okay. Quote, cooperating with the state forestry department in furnishing inmate labor and land for producing 70,000 one-year-old trees, and 1,250,000 seedlings, which will be set out next spring, end quote. So the prisoners are, you know, raising these mm. these little trees to fill mm. our forests. And lastly, an application to the WPA to remodel the territorial prison into a chapel. They were all these improvements going on, and uh, John had all these opportunities to work in the farms and in the orchards. As that's what mm-hmm. he wrote his occupation as. On July 1st, 1937, less than a month into the brother's sentence, tragedy once again struck the Rath family. Their sister, Ethel Miller, so she had been married, was attending beauty school with her four-year-old daughter, Catherine, and several other women and girls operated on the mezzanine floor of the Drake Drugstore in Nampa on the corner of 2nd Street South and 13th Avenue South. Fifty to a hundred other people were in the drugstore. It had an attractive windows display full of fireworks for Independence Day that the sons of the drugstore manager, Dwayne and Keith Drake, they'd just finished sorting and organizing this this nice little display in the window. A young boy came through the door with a burning punk in his hand. As he looked over the selection of Roman candles and rockets, a pack of firecrackers caught fire. Mrs. Dora Smith, who was at the drugstore's soda fountain, said, quote, It sounded like a huge explosion. The whole front of the building went out. Everybody rushed for the back door, which apparently was stuck. The store was packed. Women and children were screaming. It was a panic, but they got out somehow, finally. Yeesh. Wait, okay, okay. So a kid comes in, and he has... What's a burning punk? Is it just like a... It, it like kind of looks like an incense. So he came in with the intention of lighting this display, essentially. Yeah. Because no one's just going to walk around with a burning incense stick, basically. Uh, yeah. Okay. And okay. and these these Drake boys, they probably saw him and were like, oh, he's going to buy you know some right. firecrackers and go outside. Right. And he accidentally lights these firecrackers as he's sorting through. You know how kids are when they're... Yeah. They're playing with something, and they drop their ice cream cone because they're, like, reaching something. Right, right, yeah. It's probably that same thing. okay, okay. And then Mrs. A.M. Price, who was down the street when it happened, said, There was a terrible boom. I heard all sorts of fireworks hissing and sputtering. Sparks were shooting in all directions. Smoke boiled out onto the street. The fire siren was shrieking. People were running and yelling. I didn't know what had happened. Nobody can tell that an explosion is going to happen. You are not prepared for it. It was terrible. Everything happened so fast. It was the wildest turmoil I ever saw. You can't remember details of a thing like that. Oof. Yeah. 
Another witness down the street named F.H. Wheeler said, quote, The fireworks went off like a series of rapid-fire machine gun blasts. There was five minutes of a rising crescendo of explosions. The front of the building where I rushed out to look was a glow of fire that drove rescuers and firemen back, end quote. People on the main floor of the drugstore dodged rockets and flames as they ran out the front and the back doors of the building. Unfortunately, the women on the mezzanine didn't have an easy exit. Jack Gakey, a volunteer firefighter, climbed a ladder to the window and pulled four women down to safety. When he returned the fifth time, he was overcome by the smoke. Yikes. Makes me so sad. (laughs) I mean, this is on such a such a much smaller scale, but it reminds me a little bit of the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. Uh which was a nineteen eleven of company back prior to when we learned that you need to have like safety, you know, multiple exits and things like that. So uh this uh shirtwaist factory um, where a lot of immigrant women worked for really low wages the company in order to make sure no one was stealing and to make sure that like everyone was remaining at their stations for when they were supposed to be there they would lock all of the exit doors and a fire broke out and killed hundreds of women and trying like and so because all the doors were locked no one could get out so women started jumping from the windows Mm -hmm. Like, I can't remember how many floors, but, like, they just would hit the ground with, like, a sickening thud. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is a brutal, brutal thing that happened. And it, it did change a lot of um, workplace requirements yeah. and stuff like that. But uh, obviously, this is a much smaller scale. Not as many people died. But it doesn't mean it wasn't terrifying. If you're in there and you can't get out, like, how scary is that? Right. You know, like, yeah. you're not you think it's fireworks, but there's just a lot of noise. There's a lot of things happening and you're just not sure what's going on. Oh, so scary. Yeah. And women did jump out of the window. Mm. One uh, broke her leg. Yikes. And when she landed, um, several survived because of, you know, that right. j- that leap of, yeah. of faith. Yeah. And, and when Jack Gakey returned the fifth time, he was overcome by the smoke. And he was actually brought down later unconscious and severely burned, but he would actually survive the ordeal and was honored for his bravery. The fire took 15 minutes to extinguish, and when firefighters entered the building, three women and three girls had died from smoke Mm. inhalation and severe burns, including Ethel and her daughter, Catherine. Oh, that's so sad. John and Glenn lost their sister and their niece in the fire. Uh, Twelve others were injured with burns and rushed to three hospitals, and it was estimated that $25,000 in damage and stock was lost in that fire. Hmm. Traffic officer George Zeal, a veteran of World War One, said of the event, quote, Encountering death and destruction in France wasn't like the tragedy in which we worked Thursday afternoon. Those women lying on the floor, others frantically rushing about in an effort to escape, the children crying out, mothers screaming for their children, and overall the general pandemonium of fear and destruction, end quote scary that is saying so much that he said i was in france in world war one and it was nothing compared to yeah. what i saw here oh, that man. is nuts so horrible just uh the amount of fireworks mm-hmm. that are just shooting every which direction the Gosh. uh Dwayne and keith drake uh-huh. uh the sons of the owner uh-huh. um they both were scorched by fireworks hitting them oh. and we're dodging those Gosh. And, yeah the mayor actually signed a proclamation that banned the sale of fireworks after the 4th of July in Nampa that mm. year. So a double service funeral was arranged for Ethel and Catherine on July 5th at the Robinson Chapel. They are buried in the Color Lawn Cemetery. The next day, 
Ethel's husband, Ernest, was driving away from a curb when he accidentally drove over a four-year-old <gasps> boy named Richard Watson. Oh, my god! The boy survived but suffered a fractured hip. I was like, can anything? Oh, this poor husband was just like, yeah. like, can you even imagine? That would be the worst oh. thing on top of the worst thing. Oh, Poor guy. Oh, and, you know, it might not be surprising that John was locked in solitary confinement just over a week later on July 16th for, quote, creating a disturbance in cell house, mm. quote. So, you know, I can only speculate, but right. he probably got the news and right. just lost it, which, yeah. oh. And I wonder, man. too, like, my mom and I actually were talking about this. So uh, back in 2018, my my grandfather passed away um, from cancer, and it was expected. But he took a turn for the worse just before my mom and I were going to leave for oh, Europe. Oh, and, yeah. you know, my, my grandma was like, of course, he'd want you to go. But because of that, we missed his funeral. And we were talking about how there's, like, a sense of, like, there's no closure. Mm-hmm. Like, we didn't have that funeral to be able to get closure from that death. And so I wonder how much of that would have affected him right yeah. that that he assumed he'd be able to see her when he got out and all of a sudden he can't and he can't even attend the funeral to right. get closure on the end of that relationship yeah um so i just i yeah oh. total totally makes sense that yeah. he was having such a hard time yeah he spent eight days in siberia mm. and he's released on july 24th a month later he was given a work assignment august 16th 1937 as a quote special detail carpenter mm. end quote so they're giving him these, maybe he can learn some skills. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. their authorities are probably like, okay, young kid, we got to do something for him. Right. A comment form noted that he was a good worker and he served as a special carpenter for a month until September 17th. He was locked in a cell between November 12th and November 25th, 1937 for an offense, but the prison file didn't know what he did. He remained in the cell for 13 days. Mm. Then he was locked in a cell again from February 23rd to March 3rd, 1938, again for making a disturbance in his cell house. So whether fighting, yelling, screaming, whatever he right. may have done. The next job he was given was with the Bull Gang on March 11th, 1938. And the Bull Gang was a manual labor position outside the walls of the prison, but the men were typically housed in cells within the walls at night, and they were responsible for things like digging ditches, hauling hogs, helping on the farm, hauling rock, and whatever physical labor that was mm-hmm. needed throughout mm-hmm. the site. If you visit the old pen and continue walking up the street past the administration building towards the barns and the other buildings near the east wall, you actually find that resting house for the bull gang mm-hmm. where they gathered each day and, and rested between jobs. It was tough work. In the late winter and early spring, John was probably helping plant the fields and dig the new irrigation ditches that the prison owned. On February 3rd, 1938, John wrote to the Board of Pardons asking to appear on the May 10th meeting, and he noted that he had served for 11 months and was a first-time offender and felt that, quote, I have learned a lesson and can now become a useful citizen, end quote. Okay. He noted that immediately after release, he would return to his parents' home in Nampa to work on the farm, and the Board agreed to release him on a conditional pardon. A letter from H.P. Fales, who was a parole officer, was uh, sent to John on June 14, 1939. Officer Fales wrote that it was his, quote, pleasure to forward you herewith your final discharge, which restores to you your civil rights again. We hope you realize what this means to you, to again be a citizen in good standing in this government of ours. You have proven to yourself that you can obey the laws of society. May you continue to do so, end quote. 
And so John is home. He was probably helping his dad on the farm, staying out of trouble, until his brother was released on parole in January 1940. Another tragedy would befall the Raff family. On February 20th, 1940, a month after Gilbert's release, their father, Fred Raff, passed away. Oh. So the adult Raff children had lost their mother, sister, niece, and father within a four-year period. Uh, tragic, that too. That is tragic, oh. yeah. A month later, maybe out of desperation, John and Gilbert were at it again. They went on a robbery spree, and on March 9th, they broke into the animal products plant in Nampa and, quote, knocked off the safe combination, twisted the dial, and opened the safe. <laughs> it held only office records. The cash had been removed at the close of the day's business, end quote. The boys decided to steal 100 gallons of gasoline okay. from the animal products company instead. And when they were arrested, Gilbert was immediately returned to the prison for parole violation, while John was turned over to the county officers and arraigned in probate court on a grand larceny charge. Quote, he is alleged to have stolen an automobile belonging to Matthew Wentz in Caldwell the night of March 15th. The machine, stripped of its tires and tubes, was found the following day near Lake Lowell with the interior completely burned, end mm. quote. So I actually found a man named Jack Fuller had found the car abandoned near Lake Lowell and removed the tubes and tires and other equipment before it was set on fire. And <laughs> I, I think that Jack may have been in on it with John. Oh, interesting. But I think that he became a witness against John. Oh, um, yeah. But regardless, John is sentenced back at the penitentiary for grand larceny. And he returns as number 6137 this time. Okay. Sentenced two to 14 years. He's now age 21, 189 pounds, still a large build. He's still tall, tall young man, about six feet tall. Oh, he didn't shrink in he his... Didn't. Uh, okay. Yeah, Good. luckily, yeah. <laughs> he lists his new occupation as woodworker this time. So he'd hmm. probably been working with his dad or, mm -hmm. or on local farms there. His second Bertillon showed that he had the same scars on his face, but this one noted that his right eye was crossed. So it didn't mm. say blind. This time it said crossed. It also noted that his right pinky was crooked, and he had a scar on his left thumb. He was missing one of his lower front teeth, and he had a scar on the back of his left thigh. So. And how long was this between? It was about, about two and a half years. Yeah. Oh, he so, did a lot. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And during the second incarceration, John must have been given the task of repairing some of the stonework in the grout mm. in the 1890s cell house. It's fun to imagine him either on a scaffold or with a ladder climbing up near the top of the building and leaving his permanent mark on the side that John Raff with both of his prison yeah. numbers probably never imagining that someday, you know, <laughs> we would be sitting here in this trench, you know, telling a story. Probably, <laughs> probably. He also probably helped to refurbish the territorial prison and repurpose it into the chapel, mm. which would be completed in 1942. So right. he was probably helping with all of that. Yeah. It's so, sounds so like interesting he's very, to think he's, about. Sounds like he's very talented in yeah. terms of having that, that ability to do the labor necessary to rehabilitate all these buildings. Mm. And that's cool. Yeah. So John applied for pardon in the spring of 1941, and received a conditional release on March 1st, 1941. And he fulfilled his conditions. He received a full pardon on Ooh. August 1st, 1942. So wow. he may have gone back to Nampa. I, sure. I actually don't know where he went since both of his parents had passed away. Right. Didn't see that his other siblings took over the farm, so I'm not sure. Mm. I don't know what he could have done. Uh, but it seemed like he 
was making good, and cool. uh, he was going straight after his release. He reported to the Nampa Draft Board on August 2nd, 1941, and besides asking his basic old personal information for the military, the birth date, name, and address of him and his dearest relative, but it also included a physical description. And this is the first time I've come across one noting tattoos. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> we so, love those. Quote, tattoo on each shoulder and one on leg, blind and right eye. Did they say quote. what they were? It didn't. Ugh. So he must have either gotten them during his second incarceration mm. or after his release. Right. Sometime in that little period there. And actually, Gilbert Talley signed off on this document. So it was while he was on huh. parole that, yeah, that he was, he had to fill out this draft board document. In February 1945, I found that John was called for a pre-induction physical examination by the Nampa Selective Service Board. And then at some point, John moved to California, to the Bay Area, to the city of Alameda. And he got a job working as a truck driver. Hmm. Things must have been looking out for him as he made his way in this big city. Sure. A lot different from Nampa. Yep. On October 9th, 1947 a storm passed through the southern Oregon and northern California area, and uh-huh. torrential rains drenched the area spanning from the bay north. The storm resulted in 70 car crashes and eight deaths. Ooh. So on October 9th, 1947, John was driving his truck down Broadway in Oakland, California, near the Mountain View Cemetery, when he struck a parked car. Oh. The car was knocked 35 feet onto the lawn nearby, the vehicle's owners, Mr. and Mrs. Loy Chamberlain, quote, rushed out to find Raff sitting with his head thrown back and bleeding from the forehead. Uh. Police said he was driving at a high rate of speed, end quote. So, okay, so if I'm understanding, he's driving, driving really fast, hits a parked car, he skids, or the other car skids. The other car skids like 35 feet into, into these people's yard. Okay. Yeah, and he's still out on the street I now see. with okay. his head back blood pouring from his forehead he's rushed to the herrick hospital where he was declared dead on arrival Mm. so his certificate listed his death date as october 10th 1947 wow how old was he so he would have been 28 yeah that's about if if the records i found of evelyn are true that's like the same age that they died man how do we keep doing that i don't know so funny that is so weird yeah (laughs) but anyway not to make light of of that tragic end because uh, it is oh, i mean yeah. i do feel like sometimes you see people who have all of these tragedies happen and then they sort of succumb to some tragic ends themselves and, yeah. and that's so like you never want to see that for anyone just that's, having yeah. to deal with tragedy after tragedy is is just so sad and i feel like in a way his second crime was kind of understandable in that he lost so many people so quickly that i i would imagine he almost felt like there was like what is there left yeah you know like yeah yeah, i've got my brothers but like in my life like you know i've kind of been in prison this is kind of what i know Mm -hmm. so i feel like unfortunately it does make a little bit of sense but yeah interesting interesting story it's one of those things that i was thinking you know oh john raff this is gonna be a fun exciting story and it just turned out so tragic i was just so depressed writing this one and then to find his he's just such a young guy yeah oh it just everybody drives super safe if you're listening to the podcast right now and you're driving. Yes. Ten and two. Is ten that and the, two. Ten and two. Yeah. yeah. Seatbelts on. Please. Seriously. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you the thing that like changed my outlook on driving was that someone was like, 
Driving is you getting into your two-ton vehicle and you are getting on a road and you are trusting everyone else and their two-ton vehicles yeah. to like not hit you and kill you. Yeah. And that's when I was like, okay, so like I don't need to be in any rush. Like I always try to leave super early so that I'm never like there is just no reason for us to drive unsafely. Yeah. You know, we have to protect ourselves and we have to protect others when we're driving. And this is back in the time when cars looked so different than they do now. Now we've got power steering and we've got like advanced braking systems and, you know, whatever it is. But yes, just be so careful because it's a, you're behind a two ton machine just trying your best not to run into anyone. That's right. And that's scary. It's so scary. (laughs) But also necessary. I felt invincible for like it's for true. years, yeah. and then I got into a head-on right, oh. right near the prison. I was on my way to work, and I totaled my car Gosh. and the car I ran into, and it was literally, it was a split second of looking down to change my heat, yeah. and bam, you know, oh, I man. woke up to somebody screaming, and it was like... Oh, you even lost consciousness. Yeah, That's so scary. Yeah, and they, I don't know if she was screaming because I was probably looked dead in yeah. the car, but... <laughs> And I just remember just being so shocked and like, I never thought this could happen yeah. to me. And it was a blink of an eye. I Ugh. literally just, my old Saturn, I love that mm-hmm. car. Was, I remember that. Oh, and car. just that split second of mm-hmm. not, you know, not taking the turn, fully watching. Yeah. And yeah, oh, it's man. just be careful out there, especially Serious. with the winter coming. But even, you know, when the roads aren't slick, yeah. just be safe, be smart. <laughs> Uh, we don't want you to die That's in a right. car accident like John Lewis Ruff because that is so sad. Oh, such a tragic such life. A tragic, it's so tragic short. life, tragic end. Yeah, and yeah, he he did a lot in in a short amount of time. I think both good and bad. So yeah, uh, so it's amazing what a little piece of graffiti can uh, yeah. tell us here at the it's site. True. You'll hear a little bit more with uh, Suzanne Squires or Stool Pigeon Saturday coming up in a couple weeks. So, yeah, definitely check that out. And, yeah, we just have a couple more for you this season. A couple more. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.